The following Downstage Center program was originally broadcast in October 2007. Welcome to Downstage Center, a presentation of XM Satellite Radio and the American Theatre Wing. I'm John von Susten, Program Director of XM28 on Broadway. And I'm Howard Sherman, Executive Director of the American Theatre Wing. Today we welcome James Houghton. Hi, Jim. Hey. Let me just uh, tell our audience that you actually wear two hats. The first and original hat is the founding artistic director of New York Signature Theater Company, which you started back in 1991. Then a couple of years ago, you took on a second role uh, as the Richard Rogers director for the drama division of the Juilliard School, which uh, is not only intimidating just having that one job, but also keeping your other job as signature. So you've you got two jobs going right now. Signature theater is a not-for-profit theater, and you've established an agenda of single-season uh, playwrights, single-playwright seasons, including such people as Edward Albee, Lee Blessing, Horton Foote, Maria Irene Fornes, John Guare, Bill Irwin, Adrienne Kennedy, Romulus Lilly, Arthur Miller, Sam Shepard, Paula Vogel, and Lanford Wilson. You're now beginning a brand-new season with Iphigenia 2.0, which is just about to close. Mm-hmm. That's right, yeah. So tell us a little bit about that show, and then we'll get into the current season, I think. Well, it's... Uh it's an extraordinary piece. What we do each year at, at Signature is we invite a writer uh, to be in residence with us for the entirety of the season, and that writer is engaged in every facet of the creative process, um, from really uh, nuts to bolts, you know, you know, whatever that saying is. Uh, soup to nuts. Soup to nuts, thanks. Um, in the case of this particular season, Chuck and I uh, put this together over the last year, and we've opened here with uh, Iphigenia. Chuck has, um, you know, three areas he likes to focus on uh, primarily, and this is one of the great advantages of the company is that we're able to sort of do an expansive view at, uh, of what a writer does. Often writers are pigeonholed as a particular kind of writer, and at Signature we're able to sort of broaden that point of view. But in the case of Chuck, one of those uh, areas that he focuses on is his own sort of spin on the classical Greek uh, texts and Iphigenia is uh, part of a four-play cycle um, that Chuck calls the Imperial Series. I, I, I'm not sure if that's the correct uh, if series is correct, but um, Iphigenia is the first of those, and it's this um, beautiful mix of being rooted completely in the traditions of the Greek storytelling, with in essence a chorus and and uh, you know a story that sort of has a predetermined end. Um, it's grappling with major uh, issues uh, that still affect us today. But this particular play uh, is about uh, Chuck's take on it is is um, in terms of how it's contemporary bent on it is, is that uh, it's a play about um, a leader who is challenged by his um, potential troops before they go to war that this leader needs to give up one of his own to put on, on the table uh, the same potential loss that any one of them uh, may personally experience or certainly someone will experience, which is death. And so they insist that before they go to war that he uh, kills his own daughter. And in a moment, um, he agrees to that, sends off for the daughter under the pretense that uh, she's to be wed, um, and they arrive, and as as they're arriving, he changes his mind and doesn't want to do it, and long story short is that it's sort of predetermined now, and the story unfolds about the moral question uh, uh, and uh, of 
of conflict, of war, of uh, what are we willing to give um, in order to uh, substantiate going to war. Obviously, if you choose a single playwright for an entire season, that's putting enormous amount of emphasis, and it's putting, as you say, the whole company, soup to nuts, in the hands of, of the vision of that one artist. Why Chuck Me? What appealed to you about his work? Well, as I said, Chuck has... Um, I'll, I'll elaborate a little bit on the other two sort of focuses for Chuck. He, he has uh, quite a bit of his work is his own personal sort of contemporary spin on the Greek classics. Another is sort of romance. Um, he's a whole series about love, um, and and those are a little lighter, but but still um, aggressive too, in a way. And then the other is collage. He works with collage, which is uh, a series of taking materials from multiple sources and pulling them together and creating a new piece out of all of those. And in fact, that's true with the, most of his pieces. That in the case of Iphigenia, there are literally uh, material in the play that are blogs from uh, Iraq soldiers, American soldiers in Iraq. Uh, you know George Washington's uh, uh, notes on um, uh, behavior and courtesy uh, to Chuck's own writing and so on. Um, why Chuck me? I, I think Chuck is really one of our most unique and substantial writers, and he's he's really not a household name by any means. And and even within the profession, he is. Many have heard of him. Some are uh, absolute advocates of his, and some uh, have not heard of him ever. And um, he has a substantial body of work and came to the theater a little bit late. He was a historian early on um, and uh, came to the theater a little bit later uh, in his life as a writer uh, in the 60s. He was writing early um, plays in the 60s, but really uh, aggressively uh, built his body of work over the last 20 years. But Chuck, I think, uh, it has just this wild, vivid imagination, and he really stretches the boundaries of what we sort of predetermine as and, and define as theater, and particularly as writing. Um, like I said, his notion of collage, of taking materials from uh, all over and pulling them together, and he encourages people. He has a website where he offers his plays up to anyone to take, take them off the website, use them, rewrite them, reshape them, and make them their own. And he's the only writer I know who uh, does that. So there are a lot of reasons. I think he... Um, he just really stretches the boundaries, and he's important to put in the company of the other writers that we've done. Well, following up on Howard's question, do you run the risk of losing some of your subscriber base, people who say, well, gee, I really don't know the man's work, Edward Albee I know, and uh, August Wilson I know, yeah. but I think I'll skip it this season and maybe sign up for next season. Do, do you run that risk? Yeah, absolutely, um, and that's okay. You uh -huh. know, actually it's kept um, – I think I think our base audience is the same. They may look a little different every year. But it'd be just a, a matter of taste. It's the same core constituency, which I think is, um, you know, into exploring uh, the body of work. Uh, I, I think it's a very smart audience. It's a very diverse audience in, in all ways. But absolutely, you know, if I use the analogy of soup, speaking of soup, um, <laughs> you know, that, you know, if you put it in terms of soup, this year we're offering you tomato soup, next year it's chicken noodle. If you don't like tomato soup, you're not going and you're not going to partake, but you still like soup. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So it's like that. And um, uh, it's it's something that uh, is unique to the company. It's something that I think we've broadened the base of our, our uh, audience, and we challenge them in interesting ways as we go. Um, from t Take a look at, uh, say, someone like Bill Irwin. 
you know, there we're, we're asking our audience, uh, many people uh, were not interested in Bill Irwin because they didn't consider him what they would consider a writer. They thought of him as an entertainer of sorts or a clown. But I very much feel like Bill Irwin is a creator and a writer. Um, there were those who were completely turned on by that choice and establishing uh, the work of Bill as as written work um, and as literary work. You take someone, an audience that is, a, appeals to that is very different than the August Wilson audience or the Sam Shepard audience and so on. But there are links uh, there are people who leap from one season to maybe two seasons later. And there's all sorts of programming we're also doing that begins to broaden our work in general. And conversely, you may also attract people who have not come in the past who say, gee, this is a new voice. I want to hear what this is about. That's absolutely true. We, I think there is a core constituency that kind of is in it for the fun, in for the game, in for um, uh, the exploration uh, itself. And they've over the years have grown to trust us a bit and they know they're going to be challenged they may not like everything but they like the idea of exploring a full season of someone's work and they've had the fruits of that experience uh, in previous years and uh, they they give it a whirl and 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 we've built a, a substantial i think really unique audience 16 years on it seems such a inevitable idea that that there might be theaters that would explore an artist's work over a season but nobody had done it until you cooked this up and we should acknowledge that subsequently there have been theaters in other cities that have explored the idea but how did you come to be doing the work that you do which is which is three in some cases four shows in a season by a single artist well it really came out of a personal experience i was directing and and acting, um, you know, over 20 years ago uh, in New York. And I I fell upon uh, my first experience with a living writer in the rehearsal room was Romulus Linney. I had done a production in 1987 of his of a play uh, called Heathen Valley that we did down at Theater for a New Audience, another theater here. In, and you were acting in that? I was acting in that play. And, uh, you know, I, to be honest, at that point, uh, I was a little dismayed by the experiences I was having in the theater. I was feeling um, I got into the theater to be part of a community that came together and brought a story to life and that it was really uh, it was really about uh, the uh, – here I go with sayings again. Howard, help me out here. What is the sum is greater than uh, uh, than the, the sum is equal than the than all of the parts? <laughs> yeah, whatever that <laughs> I'm saying is. It up uh, um, it's, but the the notion is that we all give something, and the ultimate sum of it is much greater than what each individual has to bring to the table. But more importantly than that, was the spontaneity and the liveness of it. I was in a rehearsal process with Romulus, who in this case was directing this play as well. And simple uh, questions, observations would come up in, in a rehearsal, whether it was a basic question of, I don't understand this, what is that? And uh, it would propel a new thought in, into Romulus and into the play that might result in a new line, it might result in a new scene, but there was a sense of the event itself being alive and present. Um, and that was an absolute uh, exciting and invigorating experience for me as an actor. Um, then uh, I, during that experience, came to understand that in general, writers were not really engaged uh, or welcomed so much into the complete process. Uh, and I found that to be really confusing. Um, 
working with Romulus at that point, he was around 60 and had been in the profession for a good 30 years, very much respected in the field. Uh, we were going to maybe move that given play over to the Edinburgh Festival. And I asked him, because I was going to try to help him do that, I asked him just for some materials about him, anything that he had. And he handed me a, a stack of papers that were a couple inches thick that were all, you know, from major publications announcing him as being one of the lost treasures of the American theater, one of the most important writers. Yet here we were um, working in a, in conditions that you wouldn't think a seasoned professional would be in. It was a, the setting there is really... Uh, it's it's a theater company that's vital and alive, but it's it was it was designed for people to bang on the door and get in there and put on plays. And Romulus, uh, I felt, was not uh, in a situation. He was literally folding the programs and uh, finding the designers and and doing everything on his own, and was given the space and was grateful for it. But I felt there was a real disconnect between uh, those elements of of the writer really not being connected to the work as I felt they should be, especially coming out of the experience I was having with him, having with him and also not uh, being given their due at the same time. Uh, in addition to that, the writers um, were, were not afforded that opportunity as far as I could see ever, and it became clear to me that Romulus in that case was being pigeonholed at that point as an Appalachian writer, which is about a third of his work. Um, you know, he has material that has nothing to do with Appalachian, material that uh, he's, he's a real historian himself. He grabs onto a subject and learns everything about it, um, like Frederick the Great. And he wrote a play called Sorrows of Frederick or, uh, you know, there are many examples, uh, Gearing uh, and wrote a play called Two. Um, but, but here again, he was sort of pigeonholed as this Appalachian writer. So it occurred to me over several years, about four or five years later, I started the company in 91. And it basically came out of that impulse to work with Romulus uh, and to repeat that experience again. And over those few years, it occurred to me that, gee, he has such an enormous body of work, so prolific, that um, you could do an entire season of his work. You could also do enough that you would open and broaden the point of view about his work and, in addition to all of that, engage him in every aspect of it so that the defenses move down um, and the writer opens up and the process becomes more free and liberating. And in the case of Romulus and every writer since, I've engaged them fully in the selection of, of those plays. We've built them together. But in those early those years, how did you convince writers or did you have to convince writers to let you do it? I mean, as you say, you were an actor. You weren't a producer. You weren't part of a big institution. Right. And you're saying, trust me to to put on three or four of your shows in a season here in New York City. Well, y you know, again, I think it was about some somehow through that experience that I had with Romulus and just sort of mulling it over and thinking about it, the theater, without my knowing it, was fulfilling a very specific void. Um, and I think the writers were feeling that void. And... Um, Romulus, who I, I give tremendous credit to for sort of jumping into the abyss with us, uh, to your point, you know, completely unknown circumstance, uh, he said, let's go, let's run with it, let's do it, and let's try it. And, uh, you know, I'd gotten to know him a little bit but uh, over those four years before I started the company, but he didn't know me that well. He really, he really dove in, and we quickly learned how to do it together, and... Um, 
you know, it was a little bit of blind faith and a little bit of filling a gap that needed to be filled. And it was an opportunity at the same time. Here was somebody walking up to him and saying, uh, I think your work is important. And I want to see if we can manage to pull this thing off where you're engaged in every aspect of this process. We're going to do multiple plays. We did seven of his plays that year. Um, and, uh, we're going to do them one after the other and just be relentless about it. And he said, well, let's go, and we'll give it a shot. And then about three-quarters of the way through the season, we were so busy doing it. And it was literally uh, a grassroots effort. Well, I, I read somewhere your first season budget was about $32,000. Yeah, and that was what we added up to at the end. It wasn't There wasn't a budget when we started. <laughs> no, <it> was, <laughs> Everybody checked their wallets, and that's it where you It was that kind of deal up. where, you know, I told a friend, and they told a couple friends, and they told a couple friends, and we had a little benefit. And, you know, we, we had hustled and worked hard to find a space that was affordable and a very generous guy who made the space available to us. Um, and we were able to put, you know, a few measly bits together to make these plays come about. And, you know, I, I had insisted when we started the company that, you know, actors were going to act, directors were going to direct and playwrights were going to write and be participating. And you weren't going to be asked as an actor to, you know, sweep the floor and, and, uh, do multiple, wear multiple hats. No one was going to be asked that. So I took on, uh, more or less the burden of, keeping the money together and, and, you know, keeping the pieces together um, during that time. And, you know, we had done the first two plays, and uh, I was the only one who knew out of everybody that we were out of money. And we had nothing left, and uh, I was really sweating, how do, I, how do I get to the next play? And as you can see, in, in planning a season like this with one space, it's literally one play right after another. Um, so you're closing one and you're starting rehearsal for the next one, and sometimes they're overlapping. Uh, it, and this has happened multiple times over the the 17 years we've been doing this. But um, lo and behold, I'm right at the cusp of really uh, being in a major pinch. Uh, I get a check in the mail from somebody who had seen one of the first two plays who was had a small family foundation who uh, wrote an unsolicited grant to us because they were just turned on by the idea, the work itself, and it was just enough money to get us to the next opening. And then the box office would start bringing in more money and so on, and it worked like that. And I'll tell you, uh, to varying degrees, it's been like that ever since. Well, here you are, an actor who has a great idea. You've got Romulus on board, and somebody gives you some space to work in. How do you get everybody else involved, the director, the, the actors and all that? Is it more of just trust me, we can do this? Or Well, I, I think in truth, again, it was addressing a real need because I think th- I was not alone in feeling a little bit uh, in the various experience I was having as an actor or director, a, a little disheartened by them, you know, that that it, the experience wasn't as genuine or as, as authentic as, as my hope, I think, and aspirations were when I got into the field to begin with. You know, I really wanted to have that sense of community, that sense of a communal effort to tell a story that that moved us and said something about us and that each of us participated in that process and made something much greater than the sum of its parts. <laughs> um, so, you know, um, the truth was Romulus was surrounded by like-minded people, and I started working with that small community. And we gathered our friends together, and it was authentic. And having Romulus engaged in every facet of that experience uh, made made the experience authentic. And he was very generous in in his doing that. Um, 
was, you know, I think Romulus learned something over the course of that season that many writers have um, been, been, I guess, um, highlighted as trophies. You know, they're either invited to the opening of something or they're, they, they come as guests to something, but they're not truly engaged in a process. Um, and Romulus was engaged in every facet of that. And during the first season, what was the reaction of the press and your peers in the industry? Well, uh, again, I think because we had stumbled upon, uh, and, and I think in a rather organic way, we had stumbled upon something new, mm-hmm. and it was unique. Uh, no, no one could identify a theater anywhere in the world that was doing this with a living writer. And so immediately the press uh, grabbed onto it, and they uh, valued that as an experiment. It was favorable, I presume. Absolutely favorable, and and uh, supported the company and supported specifically Romulus in the work that we were doing. And I, th- and I think the work we w- were doing was quite solid um, in terms of what we collectively as a company were bringing to the table to Romulus. Um, it was the combination of it being new and the work being solid that I think uh, excited the press. And they really advocated for us. And I think sort of historically, you know, we've had reviews that have been wonderful and reviews that have been less so. But I have to say, generally speaking, uh, through all 17 years, I felt the press have gone uh, sort of taken it a step uh, further by supporting the idea, wanting to see this idea survive. Then after you got through that first season, was the second season any easier? No. (laughs) (laughs) Well, in fact, when I got about uh, three quarters way through the season, I realized, oh, geez, I... We're going to finish this, and uh, we have to pick another writer. And so um, what happened immediately, I talked to Romulus about it, and um, Edward Albee was somebody who had come to mind immediately as somebody at that stage of the game had not been produced in New York for 10 years, had was really written off here in at least New York and pretty much across the country. Um, still very much respected, taught in every university, basic drama class uh, and course, Uh, and internationally very much respected. Most of his premieres were happening in London or uh, Germany or or other other countries. Um, So Romulus said, look, I'll I'll ask Edward to come in and and we'll talk about it. And so it was Edward and myself and Romulus sitting in our little space downtown. And I just started talking about what these ideas of what I thought was important about the theater and and how I thought theater should be done and, and how I thought the writer should be engaged in in the thick of that process, and also about the expansion of uh, of the general public's point of view about the work. Um, and, you know, I was about midway through discussing it with Edward and Romulus. I basically was saying, here's what I think theater should be, and here's what I would hope it would be with us working together. And Romulus was saying, and this is what it's been for me. So Romulus was validating what we had just done. Edward was hearing what I thought we could do. And he just sort of stopped me midway and said, well, let's do this. Let's do this. And we shook hands and said, we're going to do a season together. And we did five uh, Edward Albee premieres uh, out of seven plays that we did during his season. That ended up being our third season because Edward was, you know, scheduled internationally. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, then I approached Lee Blessing, who wrote A Walk in the Woods, um, among many other plays, but at that point was probably his best-known play, um, but had many plays that had not been in, done in New York. And Romulus also knew Lee, and I, we both really respected Lee's work quite a bit. And and so I got a hold of Lee, and Lee immediately uh, said, yeah, let's try it. And we did, and 
That was our second season, and they so, were all premier works. See, now you had the playwright on board. What about the, the financing? What about the rest of it? Well, again, um, y- you know, it's an unusual story in that so many theaters are started each year. Uh, there are over 400 theaters in New York, and there's always some going away and some being born. Um, but on average, there's about 400 off-Broadway theaters. Um, you know, so the odds are just playing against you. But here again, the idea and the specific mission and the fact of the quality of the artists that were engaged. My my whole feeling is when you get Romulus Linney in the middle and he's the nucleus of the event, then Romulus attracts the quality artists uh, that he is. And that was true for Lee and true for Edward and true for every artist. So the artists were lining up. And so you know, I mean, just to give this a little perspective, we, and I felt very strongly about this, that everyone should be compensated, even when we had no money. Now, the compensation was, the first, I think, was $25 for the entire gig. <laughs> but everyone got 20 Romulus got $25. I got $25. The guy running the board did. The actors did, and so on. And that, I think, went up to a grand 50 bucks. I think, the second um, year, maybe up to 75 and it, But the And the second year's budget, I think, grew by... 30 percent or so i mean it was up to forty five thousand. but here again you know it's a crazy story and as all beginnings of theater companies are i think it's it's really about about passion it's about ideas it's about people uh giving of themselves in order to make the work happen and in, in truth even in the largest of off-broadway theaters it's still that so many years on you made the comment before you said people were lining up do you now have authors pitching you saying boy i'd really like you to do a season of my work or i've got these plays that no one's seen because obviously early on you had to go to people you had to make them willing to be part of what you were Um, doing yes that's definitely happened um you know in the beginning i I said to everybody you know it's going to be the writers that establish this company ultimately and it still is but at some point there, there will be an opportunity for us to invite somebody in who might not be thought of in the same company with Arthur Miller or Sam Shepard or, or, or you know, whomever, uh, that it will give us an opportunity to set the record straight and broaden people's notion of, uh, of the value uh, of an, a particular artist. So without question, we have uh, been in the lucky circumstance of having writers and agents calling us about potential ideas. And so this seems an opportune moment to say you've got your next several seasons planned, or at least the playwrights yeah. determined. Yeah. Can you talk about after the Charles Mee season, who else Signature is going to be doing? Yeah. Um, uh, so we just announced all four years. The uh, first is obviously the Chuck Mee season. Um, then we're moving into, for the first time, um, we are going to, as we've done with a writer, each individual each year, we've sort of honored that writer. We try to mark a time and place uh, and significance of that artist in in the theatrical landscape, we're going to do that with a company, and we're going to do that with the Negro Ensemble Company, the NEC, which was established in the late 60s and still exists today, um, but was one of the most vital and important companies of its time, um, especially when it was first given birth in those six, late 60s, 70s, 80s. They, there's over 150 new plays that came out of there, Many of their productions moved on to Broadway. They had free workshops. There was a whole movement that went along with the NEC that was controversial within the um, black community itself, 
Um, there was great debate within the black community. So we're going to um, focus on that. We have engaged um, uh, Ruben, uh, Ruben Santiago, Santiago Hudson, Hudson uh, to work with us. He will be a resident artist with us throughout that. Ruben had come to me with this idea while we were working on the August Wilson season together. And I was immediately taken with the idea. I thought, yes, we could do um, for that institution what what we've been able to do is highlight the significance of an individual artist. We'll be able to do that for a whole institution. And but doesn't that take a different tack in the sense of, first of all, are you going to be working with authors who are still living? Because some of them may not be from that company. And how do they come into your company and work instead of it being a singular artist for all season? Well, in a way, um, it is very different. And I sort of, if you imagine the mission as a balloon, uh, you know, we've blown it up to its absolute capacity with this, just on the cusp of popping that balloon in terms of really pushing the mission. But I'm actually really excited about that. Um, uh, yeah, it is different. It's, uh, I don't know yet. We're, st- we're in the midst of selecting the writers, um, some of, many of whom are very much alive, um, and some of whom are still writing, and and uh, yes, and some who are not. So we're um, leaving that up for grabs. What I will tell you is that if they're alive, they will be absolutely engaged in that process. We have um, turned to Douglas Turner Ward to um, work with Doug a little bit. He's going to be engaged throughout. He's the founder of the company. Um, he's a fascinating guy who's r- literally uh, walked through history uh, with the African-American uh, development uh, in the theater. It's its literally, you can trace almost all of the, uh, particularly the African-American uh, writers uh, linked or have passed through the NEC at some point or another. So um, Doug will, will have uh, something to say about it, but we will take the same philosophy that we've always had, which will be engaging the artist first, the writer first. And following Negro Ensemble season? We then move into a season of Susan Laurie Parks. Uh, and then for our 20th anniversary, we'll be moving into a season of Tony Kushner. Before we move on to your other hat, and we've been talking a lot about Signature, it's certainly been in the press here in New York, as we were talking about the growth of the company, that you were to have been a component at Ground Zero. And now that seems to not be the case. Where in the development of the company are you? You have the home that you've had, the Peter Norton space on 42nd Street. Your lease is winding up in a couple of years. Yeah. The Ground Zero project has not worked out according to plan. So where are we going to find Signature by the time we hit the 20th season? Well, it's it's hard to know the answer to that question. I can tell you this, that um, we have been working at Ground Zero for about four to five years and uh, there was a whole process um, that uh, there was a, a call for ideas um, five years ago that we participated in um, and that we were selected as the only theater company uh, to develop a, uh, the, the uh, Performing Arts Center with the Joyce Theater, which is a dance uh, institution. Uh, collectively, we were going to be building the center. We had selected um, uh, Frank uh, Geary as our um, architect, and we had just a tremendous experience developing a plan for Ground Zero. But ultimately what happened there was the expense to build on that site is so extraordinary. Um, Literally, you're building five to seven stories up before you even uh, hit street level or what they call grade level. And then 
uh, we were building a multiple uh, facility that had not only the Joyce in it, a large uh, thousand-seat auditorium, but also three theaters for us in studios, bookstore, cafe, and so on. And um, what is very much alive and has been for many years prior to that is a long-term development of, of Signature, which I can tell you a little bit about if you'd like to hear. Um, the the company will continue to do what it's uh, always done, which is one writer, one season. But we have three tracks that we're working on and developing. In our 10th anniversary, um, we started what I call the Legacy Program. And the Legacy Program is an opportunity for the writers to come back. And there are two ways to do that. And in the 10th anniversary, we started what I call the Premier Series, which is an arm of the Legacy, where we invited our writers to come back and present new work. And so we had so much interest in that from our writers that we ended up doing two years took us two years to present And you that. had that many writers. And we had that many writers. And then in our 15th year, um, we wanted to initiate the second um, series of the Legacy, which is called the Signature Series, where we turn to bo- the body of work and look to um, pieces that are more signature works of the artist that, uh, for, for instance, we did the trip to Bountiful with Horton Foote. Um, in this beautiful, beautifully mounted uh, production by uh, Harris Yulin directed it, and uh, Lois Smith was the the main character. And, and it, people in Chicago are going to get a chance to see that at the Goodman this that's year. That's right. Yeah, it'll be there uh, in the wintertime, um, almost intact, as a matter of fact. Um, beautiful production. But it, that play had not been done in New York in 45 years. So the signature series is about finding those works. We did Landscape of the Body of John Guare's many characters, music, band, very difficult play to do. Not a lot of people running to do it because of the expense and the cost, but that's something that we, on some level, try to put to the side and make that a priority to reach out to those projects. So the Legacy um, Project invites our writers back in those one of two ways, either with the signature work or premiere. Um, so that's that's the second phase. And the third is creating an early to mid-career program where writers will be coming and be in residence for three years. And each of those years will produce a new play. So there'll be three writers in that program at all times. So if you imagine, not that it's limited to each space, in your first space you have one writer, one season, um, which is three to four plays. There's always a new work there. In the second play, or second theater, uh, we have the early to mid-career program with three different artists in residence doing a new play in a fall, winter, spring sort of rotation. And in the third theater, we'd be doing three plays either uh, of the legacy, which would either be um, the world premieres or would be um, the signature works. So that's a combination of of nine artists um, in residence at any given time. It would be seven premieres. And yet it's all tied to the core value and mission, which is um, long-term relationship with the writer. It's the full exploration of a body of work. In our first One Writer, One Season is is a celebration of that body of work. In the early to mid-career is building bodies of work. And in the third legacy project, it's about continuing the exploration of that body of work. All of that was meant to be housed at Ground Zero with a cafe, bookstore, multiple rehearsal studios. And I think, um, you know, in just listening to it, I hope you get the sense of what that energy could be around that kind of environment. So going back to the soup analogy, suddenly we're offering a full course of soups, you know. (laughs) Or a stew. Or a stew, as you might say. Um, part Part of the reason why I wanted to announce four seasons was, in essence, is to help people 
to think of Signature as a place where there's more than one writer. Um, and actually, the announcement I just made of all those writers and returning writers coming um, back over these, Edward Albee will be premiering a work this year with us at the end of the me season. We'll be doing that at least two more times with other writers over the next four years. That will be a total with the um, N- NEC uh, company. Um, we'll end up with about nine writers in residence with us over the next four years. So the announcement we just made um, is very much the sort of announcement we could be making on a yearly basis. Um, now, how do we make that happen? Um, we've learned so much over these four years. We've really vetted our entire programming and our business models and all of that stuff through um, both national and international uh, systems and uh, authorities and uh, experts in the fields, various fields. And no, we know this equation can work. Now it's a matter, uh, now that the ground zero piece just is not working for pure expense purposes and reasons, now it's a matter of you know capturing another site and figuring out where do we go. And I have to say the city of New York um, and Kate Levin and and the mayor have been incredibly supportive and want to see this happen. The other piece that I would like to share with you about a recent development of signatures over the last two years, we've created a real um, just a wonderful partnership, corporate partner, where we've been able to really begin to address the cost of theater um, by underwriting every ticket to our runs, our our regular runs, which are two months each so that um, we're underwriting the ticket basically by about 70%. Well, we should say that the first season it was $15 a ticket and now it might be $20 a yeah, ticket. Yeah, uh, the first was 15 for our 15th anniversary, which again was two years. And, uh, and, and when I announced four seasons to our 20th year, I made every seat $20 till our 20th year. And Time Warner has really stepped up as, along with Margot Adams in in memory of Mason Adams, uh, who's a wonderful actor and, and somebody who performed with us. Uh, we've pulled together the resources. We're still working on it. We have a little further to go, but uh, to underwrite every one of those tickets. And now we hear of a certain Broadway show selling tickets for $450, and you're selling $20 tickets, and you're selling all your tickets for $20. Yeah, um, unless we extend, because uh-huh. we could only underwrite, you know, there's only so much we could manage to right, do, but that's right. two months of every Mm -hmm. run um, that is $20 and accessible to everyone. And the good news here is that, you know, it's fine to underwrite the tickets. The question is, um, you know, are people going to show up? And, in fact, it's been the... The stats on it are just remarkable. Well, what are the stats? Because I believe people show up at a price like that with a company like yours, but are you seeing an appreciably different audience showing up? I'm seeing a broader audience. I'm seeing that we have um, we've worked very hard. You know, you go from a very different set of circumstances of going from how do we how do we entice people into the theater uh, equation, which is what most theater is most people are doing in the theaters. How do we bring people in to share this experience to who gets to come into the theater because at that price we have found that there is massive interest in going to the theater it's just that we're shutting people out because of the price and we've done a lot of work to reach audiences that are not the regular theater goer the regular theater goer knows about this they're getting in but beyond that regular theater goer we're reaching you know you know underserved communities we're reaching students we're reaching uh, you know all economic groups. We've done 
Uh, we're playing at 105% capacity. We have waiting lists every night. We did King Headley at the end of last season, which on Broadway closed very uh, quickly. Um, we sold out that entire run in 48 hours, and on our Internet was gone in 45 minutes. Well, let, let me just read a couple of statistics from your own website, oh, okay. signature website. Okay. 30% of the audience is under age 35. 50% of the audiences were new to signature. All productions sold out, some in as little as 48 hours, and played to an average of 105% capacity. So I guess it's working. <laughs> it's working and it's thrilling. And uh, I have to say it wouldn't be possible without uh, the vision of Time Warner. They have been remarkable partners in this. And when I went to them, we did this for the first two years together for the 15th anniversary. And then I went to them with this idea of a four-season plan. And it's the largest single gift and the longest uh, commitment they've made to any single uh, adventure they've been on in terms of their philanthropic mm. uh, corporate responsibility efforts. And uh, I, I just I can't tell you how grateful I am. And the artists have been absolutely um, bowled over by it. The audiences, I'm telling you, the dynamics in that theater are different than any other theater I've been in. You walk in and people are willing to go anywhere with you. They haven't had to save up for uh, two months to you know, bring their family. Well, when we started the program, I said that you wear two hats. Let's go to your other role as the, the, the headmaster, so to speak, the, the Richard Rogers director of the School of Drama at the Juilliard. Yeah. How did you, you're, you're not an educator. You've never been to anywhere I could find a teacher. Right. Suddenly here you are running the very prestigious drama department at Juilliard. How did that happen? Well, they went through a search um, for uh, someone to step in uh, where Michael Kahn was uh, the previous uh, Richard Rogers uh, director. Uh, they did an extensive search, and somebody I had worked with professionally uh, works at Juilliard, and we were talking about it, and she uh, uh, suddenly I got a call saying, y you've been nominated for this post, and we want to know if you're interested. You were nominated without them even asking? If you'd be interested. Right, right. Uh, mm -hmm. Well, no, I mean, they're nominated to be considered. You know, I wasn't... Uh, the name was brought up. The name was brought uh -huh. up, and I was approached about it. And there was a nominating committee that was an internal committee there. And I, I called my friend and said, whoa, wait a minute. That was a simple conversation we were having. And um, But what happened was I became very intrigued by it. And to be honest, you know... Uh, you know, I'm like the perfect profile for the headhunters. I'm 40-something. I've been somewhere, uh, you know, long enough that uh, I have an established track record, and I have enough years left to maybe go somewhere for 20 years or, or so. So I've had a lot of um, headhunter interest in various jobs, and I've never um, st taken a step with any of them because I felt the work that I was doing at Signature was so vital and important to me personally. Um that I uh, that felt fulfilling. When um, this came up at Juilliard, I found myself um, intrigued by the idea, and which completely shocked me um, because it, I had such clarity in those other uh, those those other um, you know calls. So um, I talked to the president of the school and I said, "Look, you know, I I think this is really compelling. I think there's." Juilliard's at a real crossroads here, and I think there's an opportunity given uh, the importance of that school and the, the quality of what goes on there um, that 
that a lot a lot of um, future potential was um, you know just at the cusp of of being realized and I said to him you know look if you're willing um, usually my instinct tells me to run away if you're willing to let me go through this process with you um, I, I'd really be interested in in walking through the process with you as long as you're willing to let me go through it and, and at some point I may say, you know, this doesn't feel right. So one thing led to the other, and I went through a very elaborate process, and I found myself getting more and more intrigued. And, in fact, the work itself, while I haven't been an educator, the work at Signature, um, it's, you know, we don't put on productions. We're putting on an idea. And and ultimately, I think education is about ideas and embracing ideas and reflecting off of them and growing from them. And I think that's where the connection comes. And the the chair position there, the Richard Rogers um, director position, is really set up for a professional. They want a professional to sit in that seat to run that program so that the profession is being brought into the institution on a literal basis. Um, so... As I went through the process with Joseph Polisi and the Juilliard School and all of the faculty there, um, and and most importantly, the student body, I became more and more intrigued about what I felt was just a wonderful opportunity to try to demystify the profession a little bit uh, for those students and to uh, be a a New York um, director and uh, company with Signature um, and and with the quality of Juilliard of marrying these two things together through my participation in both. And you've made some changes since you've been there. For example, you get about 1,000 applicants each year. Yeah. You can only select 21. And you've changed the the audition process some, to yeah. some degree. Uh, you know, it's funny because I, uh, once I went through that process and, in fact, uh, I took on the job, I had expected that I would more or less – I had a few months to observe the last few months of last uh, – of the – I guess that was two years ago uh, mm-hmm. of the spring. And um, I had made the assumption that I'll more or less take in a year and then whatever beginning changes I'll make, I'll start to make. Well, uh, it suddenly occurred to me that, uh, you know, I'm on, a, I'm on an academic calendar. And uh, I, I literally would have to wait an entire year um, to affect a budget, to affect any change because the schedules are made that far in advance. So uh, my instinct took to, took over, and I immediately started changing some things <laughs> just from the few months of observation that I had. And a couple of things was the audition process is what I added to the process. It's even tighter than what you mentioned. It's now down to 18 seats are available for about 1,100 applicants. And so what I initiated was a New York City callback because we auditioned people in New York. We auditioned people in Chicago and San Francisco, the idea being that we're reaching all points of the country by people trying, trying to create a central line through the country. Um, but we would never get the opportunity to see those folks in uh, Chicago or San Francisco again. So uh, I went to the president and discussed it with the faculty, and we created a new callback system where we fly people back, the top 40 students, and they spend two very intensive days over a long weekend with us, basically learning about who we are as much as we're learning about them. And out of those 40, we selected 18. So that really, that was in tandem with a major shift for the division, which was I eliminated uh, the cut system at the end of the second year. Uh, Traditionally, at the end of the second year of training, 
um, that was sort of a threshold that the students passed through. Either you were kept or you were cut. And there were years where severe cuts were made, uh, where many students were cut, and years where maybe one or two. But I felt that that was um, creating an atmosphere of fear and, um, uh, and, and not the right kind of fear, the kind of fear of people that would limit those young people in their exploration of the work. I wanted them to confront the fear of going too far. Of I wanted them to go too far and be willing to go too far. They, uh, for those first two years of training, I think, in essence, whether they were consciously doing this or it was subconsciously, they were auditioning for the program over and over and over again. And I wanted to eliminate that. So how do you eliminate it? You you take responsibility for your choices from the get-go. And so by marrying a much more intensive callback process where we can learn so much more about them and they can learn about us because I think there are times when students were coming to the program and not realizing quite what they were getting themselves into. Um, that, I think, created a dynamic where we were able to select a little bit more smartly and, uh, and also make a, a firmer commitment to those young people. The other piece of the puzzle is, which will sound contradictory to what I've just said, is that now they can be cut any year. And by that I mean it's the cut is based on all things that are in their control. It's the tangible things. If we select you to come into the school, we're saying we believe in you, you're talented, and we believe in that talent. But if you don't show up for class, if you're violent, if all those sort of tangible things, um, you'll be cut. So I want to create uh, a sense of responsibility for those young people that that's all their choice. They choose to show up on time. They choose to be ready for rehearsals. They choose to have their words down. The things that you can grab onto and identify as just the factors that matter in terms of creating an intensive community that um, is aggressively working towards building craft. So um, I combined all those elements, and I think it's, in a way, transformed some of the dynamics. What sort of reactions did you get from the president and the administrators of the school? You know, I have to say, um, the administrators were very excited by it um, and believed in it right away. I think some of the faculty at first were a little apprehensive because, in essence, I was taking a safety net away. You know, if we if we made a choice early on and maybe it was some somebody we it's just a surprise or things aren't working out, I was changing the dynamics significantly. But uh, I have to say, the faculty have been so incredibly supportive and dynamic and. Uh, and believe in this. And the student body, I think, has transformed in terms of the dynamic of, of how far they're willing to go and what they're exploring in, the, in their craft and building of it. Well, we're talking about the process of people coming into the program. I wanted to ask, there are certainly many undergraduate and graduate acting programs, and we've been talking about the acting. There's also a playwriting program at Juilliard. A wonderful playwriting program. We've had both Chris Durang and Marsha Norman yeah, as guests I, on this program I, this, previously. I, I want to say one thing. I think it's one of the best programs in the country. Their, their work with these writers is extraordinary. I, I, it's, it's one of the best kept secrets. Well, what I wanted to ask you is, with all of these various programs that train people for careers in the theater, is the Juilliard approach in some way different? And indeed, since coming to Juilliard, have you changed the approach? Um, you know, I've been there. I've just completed my first year. I'm in the beginning of my second year, and we're going to go through a very aggressive um, curriculum initiative where we're going to, in essence, um, sit down and evaluate. In fact, I'm starting this evening with this. Sit down with the faculty and evaluate what are we doing 
and how are we doing it and why are we doing it to actually literally sit and talk about that and there'll be quite a few retreats and so on that will be addressing this and my hope is that we'll be creating both an external and internal uh, group of committees that will explore what's going on across the country in training programs so that we're actually making choices in the context of what's going on right now um, and um, to also get and do that internationally as well uh, to mostly English-speaking countries um, and some not. But um, we'll be doing that uh, while we're examining our own internal uh, motives and, and work. Um, I lost my train of thought. Where were you? Uh, well, just in terms of the Juilliard program and its relationship to other programs oh, yeah. out there. Well, you know, um, it's hard to say because I, I know a little bit about some of those programs, but I hope to know a lot more over the course of this study that we're going to be doing. My hope is in two years we'll be announcing a new curriculum that um, – and, and also a structure that will force us to reevaluate this on an ongoing basis, that it's just built into our – DNA that we and, and I think all good teachers do this independently but as a program I think we need to do this um, which is just to constantly be reevaluating reshaping who we are and evolving and growing it's a living breathing organism and I think the founders of, of this particular program Michelle Saint-Denis is exactly the type of person who would have been doing that now it's very much about what is relevant training in 2007 and then 2008 and 9 and 10 11 and so on so that's what we're going to be doing um, over the over the course of the next few years. Do you find yourself every so often wondering how you how you ended up in the position of running an org- an institution at Juilliard, the drama division that John Hausman ran? And when you started your career as an actor, John Hausman was one of the people who helped choose you to go out and tour the country as yeah, an actor. Yeah. You and John Hausman are not exactly the same type of folks. No, we're not. But um, it's funny because when I was uh, in my own training at SMU in, in Dallas, uh, the Dallas Opera was celebrating its 25th anniversary, and uh, John had directed uh, Otello as the opener of, I think, the... Um, I, I'm not sure if I'm getting this right. I think it was the opening of their first year. But regardless of when that occurred, they brought him back to do it again as part of their 25th anniversary. And so they called over to SMU because they needed someone to stage fights for it, and I happened to be uh, studying that and doing quite well with it. And so there I ended up with, uh, prior to the acting company, which John ran with Margot Harley, who still runs it, um, I ended up choreographing fights for John's Otello with a bunch of opera singers and um, and John. And uh, had this, um, John was also honored by the Meadow School of the Arts at, at uh, SMU the same year where um, they spent a week bringing colleagues of John's and focusing on different nights uh, and different aspects of his career from radio to television to uh, the theater and so on. To And, and they brought people from all walks of those particular lives of his um, in to sort of celebrate and discuss that time. Many of the people who were there, I'm sure you guys, uh, particularly on the theater end, have talked to. I can think of Mark Lamos. That's the first time I met Mark Lamos, wonderful director and former artistic director of the Hartford Stage Company, uh, and actually my director for um, uh, the, the play, one of the plays I did um, with the acting company. Um, so, yeah, I, I once in a while sit in my office at Juilliard and, and have that moment with myself where I'm thinking of John 
and the tour with the acting company and getting notes from him. And it was a very, he was still very active with the company. A few years later, he became a little less active. But yeah, it's sort of an out-of-body experience. Well, in the couple minutes that we have left on the program, John Houseman did start the school in 1968. Juilliard's been around 100 years, but the drama division, yeah. he was the first one, first director in 1968, and he was your mentor. In the New York Times, Patty Lapone, who was in the first graduating class at Juilliard School of Drama, she said, as he, John Houseman, always said, discipline, discipline, discipline. It's the idea of breaking down your psyche to develop you into a Juilliard actor. Well, that was of John Houseman back then. <laughs> yeah. Is there a Juilliard, with quotes around it, actor? And if so, is that going to change under your stewardship, do you think? Um, yeah, I think I think it is. Um, well, is, is there a Juilliard type of actor? No. I, 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 no. I, you know, I think, uh, you know, when, when you spend way too much time with yourself, uh, it, you know, in, in, in this field, and particularly in the side of education, I think people start identifying notions of what different programs are. Uh, create and the bottom line is what I think we're creating at Juilliard right now. Uh, I can't speak to what it was necessarily because I wasn't there, but I can tell you right now what I I hope to uh, help the actors discover is who they are, what are their motives, how do they how can they be the most generous of actors, the most informed, uh, the ones with serious craft to build an entire uh, career and life on. And, and and I mean that even beyond um, the field itself. I mean that their experience over this four years is really about the development of of young uh, minds and young people who will be serious contributors to our society. And for many of them, that will be as artists, and some of them that'll be um, in other professions. But my hope is that they carry the core values of what they learn that are r- related to responsibility for self and. Uh, that your actions have consequences, that um, dedication and rigor actually do add up to something. Um, in this particular case, that rigor and dedication is surrounding and, and focused on acting, but that those same principles apply to all walks of life. And my hope is um, by the end of the day, um, they've passed out of that school and passed through that school, having in some cases, many of them come from the bedrooms where they grew up to being um, very significant, young, and thoughtful, um, and and, um, aware um, young adults. Well, Jim, as the uh, director of the drama division at Juilliard and as the artistic director of the Signature Theater Company, you're a very busy man, and we thank you for spending an hour with us today on Downstage Center. It's my pleasure. It went by very quickly, at least for me. Likewise. Likewise. <laughs> Thanks, Jim. Thanks. Thanks, guys. For the American Theater Wing, I'm Howard Sherman, reminding our listeners that these programs and all of the educational and media work of the American Theater Wing is available online, on demand, for free, from our website, www.americantheaterwing.org. And for XM Satellite Radio, I'm John Von Susten for Downstage Center. That is a wrap, and thank you. The American Theater Wing encourages all of our podcast fans to share our programs with friends and colleagues, but we remind you that any commercial distribution, commercial use of our programs, or program modification is prohibited without our express permission. We appreciate your cooperation and invite you to contact us with any questions. Thanks for listening.